Whether it's hurricanes in the Atlantic, fires in California, earthquakes in Mexico, or flooding in South Asia, in 2017, extreme events have dominated the headlines. My name is Paul Simpson. I'm the international audience editor for the BMJ. And with climate change high on the international agenda and the frequency and severity of extreme events increasing, I've come to Public Health England to speak to Professor Virginia Murray, who is Public Health Consultant for Global Disaster Risk Reduction. Virginia, thanks very much for talking to me. It's a great opportunity to share some of the things I've been doing. Thank you for inviting me. So I wondered if you could perhaps paint a picture of the impact of disasters globally. Wow, that's a challenging idea. I think most of us have seen extensive news coverage about disasters in the world. And I think many of us have found our hearts going out to the people who've been affected so badly by these disasters. And this has been going on, obviously, for decades, in fact, probably for millennia. What we have now under the United Nations is an incredible approach. Perhaps I should take you back to 2015. There were three UN landmark agreements. You've mentioned the Climate Change Agreement, the Paris Agreement, which has acquired increasing resonance across the world, in part because there, I believe, is one country who is now choosing to come out of that programme. But we've also got the incredible agreement for the Sustainable Development Goals, which is there to end poverty, but links directly not only to the Climate Change Agreement, but also to the framework that I've had the great privilege of working on. So I've been working on the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. It runs from 2015 to 2030, and it may not be something that many listeners of this podcast have ever heard of before, but it's been a huge global agreement, and I'd like to share it with you. So you were quite involved in the development of the Sendai Framework, and I mean, you led it in in lots of ways, is that true? No, 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 no. What was your role in, in developing the Sendai Framework? So my, I first started working with UNISDR, the United Nations Office for Disaster Reduction, in 2008. I was asked in 2008 to go and be the UK government representative on the Scientific and Technical Advisory Group. And I did that for some time, but in 2013, I was being promoted to being the vice chair of that group and have had the great privilege of really being involved extensively in all the developments, discussions, the negotiations, the intermediate review that came through halfway through the Hyogo Framework for Action, which was something that ran from 2005 to 2015, taking it through to how we would deliver the future with the UN member states about what they wanted to be able to have a framework that they could function in. So would you be able to sort of describe what, what the framework is exactly and, and what it what it commits people, well, governments to, to doing? The framework has an incredibly simple approach and it was fascinating sitting in on the United Nations negotiations. I sat in there as an observer representing the science and technology process, the whole of the system, as my as in my vice chair role, representing the International Council of Science and many other of these incredible scientific organisations across the world. So I could observe what happened. Imagine one of those James Bond movies. <laughs> Let's go back to something that's vaguely imaginable for all of you listening. 
And you see people sitting in rows inside the UN. And behind them, they sit there as little groups of six, and in front of them are their flags of their nations, or even just literally their names on a white card. And the negotiations start. They discuss every single word. Should it be should, or could it be could? All the way through, there is haggling of words, and some of them are really important, like could we get vulnerability in there, exposed? Could we get an all-hazards approach, not just a natural hazards one? How do we explain disasters in a way that was accessible, transparent, and usable by each of these United Nations member states, giving them a vision? And the vision is really incredible. So I'm just going to open the Sendai framework and take you to a very brief paragraph, which I would like to read, if I may, because that will help others, I think, to understand. The vision by the end of 2030 will be the substantial reduction of disaster risk and losses in lives, livelihoods and health, and in the economic, physical, social, cultural and environmental assets of persons, businesses, communities and countries. That is what the UN member states asked for. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't it what we all want? But gosh, it's a pain about how we're going to achieve it. <laughs> and each of these points that were raised in this really relatively short framework were really very much driven by the UN member states themselves. And I think what really surprised us was the call for science and technology to be at the heart of the driving of this framework. So that's been an enormous privilege. Can you describe what, what, what the commitments are that, that, that have come out of the framework? Well, it's the very first time that for disasters we've actually had targets and indicators. So we've got seven agreed global targets on reducing mortality, reducing the numbers affected, reducing the numbers of uh, economic damage, reducing the damage to infrastructure, which obviously includes health and health facilities, but also how health facilities function, which is incredible. Mm. But there's also this wish to increase individual countries' understanding of what that risk assessment should be, how they need to prepare for these events that will happen, and equally how we can share international partnerships and knowledge and how we can really communicate best to do this with one that I thought was really cleverly added by the European Commission, which is substantially increase the availability of and access to multi-hazard early warning systems and disaster risk information and assessments to the people by 2030. So you know what the risks might be and what you have to face, and I think that is incredible. And under each of these seven global targets are a whole series of incredibly sensible, but also some very surprising indicators that the UN member states themselves have asked for, and that they are prepared to invest effort in, in trying to show that they're reducing the impact of disasters. So you've described them as surprising, so I'm going to ask you, why are they surprising and what are they? Well, one of the hardest things is how do you counter death from disasters? Mm-hmm. If you look at flooding, we would inevitably associate a death from disaster as drowning. Mm-hmm. But after the Thailand floods that happened in 2011, were we really ready for the numbers of electrocutions that occurred with the flooding? And one of the consequences of flooding is that there's inevitably, as was found in the Philippines, an increase in vectors. Mm -hmm. 
so you get many more infectious disease risks. But you also have people who work really hard to try and deal with these consequences. So the risk of non-communicable diseases grows. If you can't manage them, you can't get healthcare, get to your healthcare facility and your medication. But the other thing is that these disasters really distress people and they have very significant mental health and psychosocial impacts. So how do you measure that? And for instance, in the UK, how would you measure your frustration with your insurance companies and builders if it results in you feeling so depressed or so upset that you actually commit suicide. How do we count that? Because it may not happen at once and it may not happen in a short term. So trying to understand even what we mean by mortality and reducing that is something we're still struggling with to try and find out exactly what the UN member states want us to report on. So it's complicated. It's not as easy as it sounds. So, so we're two years after the introduction of the framework and so presumably once the framework is in place there is a, a road map well we've developed a road map for the science and technology approach i had the extraordinary privilege uh, in january 2016 to be the chair of the organizing committee for the very first post 2015 un conference and this time it was on this how we can get science and technology to deliver to achieve the Sendai framework for implementing the implementation of the Sendai framework. And that was a three day, really exciting conference with huge discussions, debates, which came out with some incredible points, which we then published in a peer reviewed paper within two months, I'm glad to say. And knowing Fiona Godley's concern about peer review and many others, we felt it was really exciting to have this peer review paper with a hundred contributing authors telling people about what we think the major impacts are from the scientist's point of view, but also linking to the roadmap that was initially being developed and is now more agreed on how we implement the Sendai framework. And at the moment, there's a drive to try and tick off those tasks that we need to be able to implement the framework. From that conference, there was quite a lot of case studies looked at at different examples of, of how technology and science has informed, I guess, retrospectively informed, you know, the understanding of particular disasters. Can you share some of that learning? Well, the learning about case studies was something that it took us a while to understand and how important it was for policymakers. We didn't quite realise how much policymakers needed science to tell a story. And from the health domain, we've had obviously huge support for some of the, that storytelling. So let me just take you into an example or two. When we were writing the report to help to drive science and technology into the engagement of the UN member states, we found it really helpful to build these case stories. And we found that what we needed to tell was what is the problem? What is the science? What is the application to policy and practice? And the final one that has been so difficult to measure is, did it make a difference? Now, in the health domain, as the health science, one of our six great sciences, we are very rigorous in making sure that we evaluate what we do. And we have systems and processes where evaluation is easier. 
So when we looked at this and used the immunization program to prevent congenital rubella and the impact upon the fetus, we found that we got some very clear and strong messages, which we were even able to drill down to individual countries by image to show which countries were implementing an immunization program for rubella in the pre-menarche young girls. What was so fascinating about that is how many countries are not doing it. And it's the Americas who've come up so strongly, with PAHO taking this huge leadership that was able to really demonstrate this. But what I found so challenging was how do we make it, this information accessible to policymakers? And it was Rosamond Southgate, who was one of my public health registrars working with me at the time, that, and with Kathy Roth from the World Health Organization and others, we ended up with a format where we never used more than 600 words to tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. We had listed at least five peer review references that would be able to tell the story for us, for those who needed to know more. And because of that rigour that we introduced about shortening, clarifying, simplifying the message, we ended up with messages that were much easier to communicate to policymakers. So we realised storytelling makes a difference. And that has been a great privilege in itself. Mm With the rubella example that you've just described there, one thing that I I missed a little bit was how that directly related to disasters, the immunisation programme that you described. Okay, well, we had a long discussion about whether individual cases are part of a disaster. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we came up with our scientific and technical advisory group was that if you have a population of individual cases, you therefore have a disaster. Mm -hmm. Think of polio. Right. Think of malaria, think of smallpox, think of all these terrifying diseases that cause so much harm. And we know that we have to deal with individual cases in medicine by looking at the population benefits that we then start reducing the impact. And that came through as a very strong message and really helped to inform us on what we mean by an all-hazards approach. It is not just the individual cases, but when you put it into a population-based epidemic or even a pandemic, we then start getting that traction, which is so important. Why does it matter? Well, the World Health Organization has been incredibly strong. They've introduced the international health regulations after SARS, the Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and that has really helped to produce a legal leg on which the Sendai framework can exist, because otherwise it's a voluntary agreement by these UN member states, although they agree to report every two years. And that very strong legal leg that we have taking us to Ministries of Health is incredibly helpful. But why the Sendai framework is so precious? Because it works to the heads of state, and through the heads of state not only involves the Ministries of Health or Departments of Health, it also involves the Ministries of Finance, the people who hold those wonderful resources that we need in health to be able to deliver the work that is so important. But it applies just the same to flood prevention. It applies just the same to understanding how we do early warning and forecasting. It applies to all these things we need to deliver in understanding risk, bringing governance, investing, and then actually dealing with these events when they happen and recovering from them where we can. One thing that, that in, in my mind is an interesting tension potentially is where health and other sectors rub up against each other. And, and I guess that when I think about natural disasters, 
if there is such a thing, and your face t- suggests that there isn't. Well, correct me, what, what have I said wrong there? Well... Uh, There's no such thing as a natural disaster? No, because you have humans there. Okay. Well, there. Yeah. So it's all hazards. It's all the hazards. Mm-hmm. So although we might want to call them natural catastrophes, of course they are, but it's because humans are there that we have that disaster. If you have a cyclone in the middle of the Pacific that doesn't go to land, then it probably isn't a disaster. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, that does speak to what I was about to say, which is um, where you you rub up perhaps against different competing agendas. And so urban planning, I think, would be one in my mind where... You, there has to be a sort of almost a negotiation, and I guess how how does how does that play out? Well, I find this a huge learning curve. It's been an amazing learning curve. You talk about planning, but I see planning as a way to improve health mm-hmm. and well-being. I would like the green spaces, the blue spaces, the spaces for for for, for where flood water can go, for the spaces where we can have trees to reduce the impact of heat waves, the spaces where we can have space for uh, exercise and making people feel well, that that hugely important element of well-being. So to me, I feel health has become very siloed. Mm -hmm. If you only look at healthcare in hospitals or in primary care, I'm interested in health and well-being, the population as a whole. I want people, preferably if we do health and well-being really well, not needing healthcare advice because they can stay well themselves. But to do that, they need to engage with all the environment in which they live. And for us in science, we have to have the natural hazard scientists, the engineering and technologists, the agricultural scientists. We need the food to grow safely. We need the social scientists. We need the lawyers, the economists. But we also need the humanities, the people to remind us of what's happened before Mm -hmm. and how we can understand and learn from those events. And there's a huge amount of gelling across all these incredibly rich roles of science, which makes the whole story of science so much stronger. But it also allows for this opportunity for health leadership, because we have this huge discipline of evaluation and monitoring as a key function in everything we do and every decision we make. And we also communicate. Wonderful thing about healthcare professionals at every level is they talk to individuals. They listen to them. They hear what they say. You respond to what they want. And that way we get a much better understanding of what is needed to be able to deliver all the sciences. But if we can get the all, all the sciences to engage, then we begin to understand disaster risk reduction and disaster risk management as this whole context, this whole partnership that is going to be so important for the future. So where what what's happening next? I guess that's my kind of next question. Where um, what are the next challenges to address? You've mentioned that there's still some discussion about what the indicators should be. What's the kind of short the, the near future hold for implementing Sendai? Well the near future is that there is reporting in two years and the first target that has to be achieved is for every country in the world to do something that the UK has been leading on, often with support from many others, which is our National Risk Register. An open, accessible assessment of our risks. 
which is publicly available, published every two years, which now, this time, this year, has been amazing because it's taken you right down to the individual and what they can do, not just what the government departments can do in trying to prepare people, but to get them engaged in how they can look after themselves. Now, obviously, pandemic flu for us in the UK remains a very high risk. But this time in 2017, I'm really pleased to see that at last we've recognised the risk of cold, ice and snow mm. on the health of the population and the impact that it would have. So that's been an incredible change, that people are beginning to really understand how national risk registers work. And that model is something that we're taking to many other countries to engage with. And some find it really hard to see what their national risk assessment, what their national risk register might be. And actually, a lot of them are quite anxious about publishing that data in individual countries. So we're there trying to encourage them to start sharing that information wherever we can. And if you've got, on an individual level, what's your advice for an individual clinician or just an engaged member of the public? Well, one of the things that Sendai has said so clearly is the need to look at people with non-communicable diseases, both before, during and after disasters. And clinicians are so often managing patients with diabetes or all sorts of other diseases that rely so heavily on expert medical care and resource to relevant medication immediately. I wonder how many physicians, pharmacists, nurses really remind patients that they must carry their prescriptions with them at all times, that they must should have at least three days supply at any one time in case a crisis strikes. Mm -hmm. And the three days is a slightly arbitrary number, but we feel that that at least makes sure that we have recognition of what people need in a crisis. And certainly after the Japanese really frightening earthquake, tsunami and the other events that occurred in 2011, one of the things they got very worried about was providing the medication for the patients who had lost their medication. But if you know what you're meant to be taking, it's so much easier to re-prescribe. That problem was identified ourselves in the UK in many occasions, but also in Australia with their floods and indeed the problems with the wildfires and other events that have happened in Canada and elsewhere. People often leave without taking their medication with us. So one of the things we've been trying to do with a lot of uh, information we put out is please have a grab bag. Please know what your medication is. And certainly for those at risk of flooding, make sure you have uh, your insurance papers or whatever you may need, at least a copy of them. And if you have a hearing aid, make sure you take your batteries, remember your glasses. And certainly after the Kobe earthquake in Japan, which happened some time ago, there was a real concern that a lot of the elderly care had lost their false teeth so they couldn't eat properly. So mm. malnutrition came in. So it's really making sure we get people aware that they need to be ready for a disaster and they need to have what they need to be able to survive it more easily and to make sure they can get what they, what they have to have at the time that they need it. And then finally, I, I wondered whether you had a, a message for the researchers out there about what, what, what can they do to get involved and what's needed? I think that's the other question. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I just love the incredible richness of the UK and international researchers. To me, uh, we have something called the UK Alliance for Disaster Research, but this is a model that's being picked up in other countries where we try and bring people together. But research in disaster risk reduction, disaster risk management only really works best if you listen to what people need to know, 
What is the question that we're trying to answer? What is it for the local community? What is it for the local resilience? For What is it for the government? What question do they need? And how can we help to deliver that answer in a way that is useful, usable, but most importantly, used? And if we can get every scientist to think about how they can make their science useful, usable and used, I think the excitement they will have in seeing that their messages, their learning, can be taken into policy and practice and really make a difference. Wouldn't that be great? That sounds like brilliant advice, no matter where you're working. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Professor Virginia Murray discussing the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction and how science and technology can help to mitigate the impact of disasters. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to listen to previous podcasts, they're all free and you can find them on bmj.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.